a DVD was produced called Three Faiths, One God. It has been shown on public television, and there's, uh, I checked on the internet this week, and there are several clips of this uh, production. The premise is that the religions of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity have more similarities than differences when it comes to the character of God, the nature of God. The conclusion drawn from that, at least that the producers hope to be drawn from that, is that Christianity is not the only way of salvation, not the only pathway to heaven. Well, right away we have a problem. Both Islam and Judaism reject the Trinity. They reject the deity of Christ. The biblical concept of God in the Bible is far different than the biblical concept of God held by these other faiths. Jesus made it abundantly clear that uh, eternal life, forgiveness, was only through him. No, Islam and Judaism and Christianity do not believe in the same God. Christianity is unique in what it teaches about the nature of God and the person and work of Christ. Christianity is a missionary faith. We have a mandate, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We believe that in obedience to God, we must proclaim the gospel and pray that converts will come out of Judaism, out of Islam, out of any other spiritual belief or no spiritual belief to faith in Jesus Christ. Just as eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, so eternal vigilance is mandatory when it comes to believing and proclaiming the truth of the gospel. For the most part, churches in Canada and around the world have bought into the postmodern concept that there is no absolute truth, spiritually or morally. That there is no one way. That there is no one source of truth. Jesus would beg to differ. For he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now some may be, be willing to call Jesus misguided or a liar. And I'm not prepared to do either. As local churches, it's imperative that we rigorously proclaim and defend the gospel set forth in the Bible. And we at Wetaskiwin Mission Church make no apologies for doing that. One of the fundamental truths found in the scriptures is that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. And Paul is boldly defending that gospel in the book of Galatians, as we have been seeing over the last several weeks. And he is refuting and he is warning those who would dare proclaim a different gospel. The heresy that threatened the Galatian churches is very much with us today. That heresy is that faith alone does not save, but you need to add works or rituals to that faith. In fact, most churches in our nation, indeed all nations, 
insists that rituals such as baptism and communion automatically bring one into the family of God and a right relationship with God. The Bible does not support that notion. Salvation is always personal, never corporate. It is not passed from one generation to the other. It is not bestowed on an individual via the church or through the sacraments. We are forgiven of our sins and enter into a right relationship with God only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is always an inward thing as opposed to an outward thing. It is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. It does not come about by the external actions either of the individual or of a religious organization. Christianity and salvation is spiritual, not material. It does not come through ceremonies or rituals, only through faith. So these are some of the things that Paul is dealing with in the Galatian churches. We looked at Galatians 3, 1 to 5 last week, where Paul used the experience of the Galatians to show them that justification was by faith. How did they receive the Holy Spirit, he asked them? Through the hearing of faith or through the works of the law? Well, it was through the hearing through faith. And he chastises them. He calls them all foolish Galatians. He chastises them for being enticed by false teachers who seek to add to the gospel. He is saying you experience the proof in your own life that justification is by faith apart from the works of the law. And that brings us now to Galatians chapter 3 verse 6 where we read, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now why is Abraham suddenly introduced into the scene here? What has Abraham got to do with anything? Well, let's remind ourselves that the only scriptures the Apostle Paul had was the Old Testament, not the New Testament. So Paul is about to defend salvation by faith from the Old Testament. More than that, he is about to use the example of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, as one who was declared righteous by faith. So Paul sets forth his argument. If the father of the Jewish people was justified by faith, apart from works, apart from rituals such as circumcision, then the Judaizers are wrong. Abraham was the supreme example of how to become right with God. Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised, not after. He was certainly declared righteous long before the law of Moses because that wasn't given for 400 years after Abraham. The key passages, and let's do a little bit of history there, is from Galatians chapter 12 where God makes a covenant with Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, his name now is Abram, it becomes later Abraham, father of the multitudes. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land which I will show you. Now 
Abram was raised in a pagan culture, and God chose him. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham was 75 years old. Then we turn over to chapter 15. And uh, still Abraham has no, no children at this point. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. Abraham said, O Lord, what will you give me so, for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And God says, oh, no, he isn't. You're going to have your own child. Now, that doesn't happen until he's 100 years old, which, by the way, is rather unusual. Abraham said, Behold, you, you've given me no offspring, and the number of my household, a, me- a member of my household, will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord comes back to Abram. This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Look toward the heavens, number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, God says to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. Look at the stars, Abraham. You don't have a son yet, and you're an old man, but you'll have sons like the stars of the heaven in number. Now here's our key phrase. And Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith in the promise of God. Then we turn over to chapter 17. Abraham's now 99 years old, no son. And uh, God renews his his covenant um, with him. I will establish my covenant between you, me, and you, and your offspring after you throughout all generations. I'll give you and your offspring, but I don't have any offspring, God. I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourns, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, I will be your God. And then the rite of circumcision is introduced in chapter 17. Abraham is 99 years old. Verse 19, But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, not Eliezer of Damascus, not Ishmael, the son of Hagar, But Sarah will bear a child. Now, she's 90 years old. I will establish my covenant with him, with him, as an everlasting covenant for his offspring. Now, the same truth is taught in the book of Romans, chapter 4, that Abram was justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. And he becomes the father of all those who are justified by faith. In John 8, 56, Jesus is speaking to those who vehemently opposed him and want him dead. And here's what Jesus says to this group who are hostile to him. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Those are amazing words. He sought and was glad. 
There was something about the faith of Abraham whereby he understood probably very vaguely that a Messiah would come, that a Savior would come. The point that I'm making, the point the Apostle Paul makes to the Galatians is that God is always consistent and his way of salvation is always by faith. That's true in the Old Testament. That's true in the New Testament. You cannot make yourself righteous in the Old Testament. You could not make yourself righteous in the New Testament. Man has no capacity to do that. So we are blessed if we receive salvation by faith apart from works, but we are cursed by striving to be saved through good works. You're wondering where we get the title for the message? Well, there it is. You're blessed if you believe. You are cursed if you do not believe or try to add something to your faith. So verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. There's our word. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now the law could refer to the commandments, to the ten ten commandments, although there are hundreds of commandments in the Old Testament. First four of the ten commandments have to do with our relationship with God. The next six, our relationship to one another. In the New Testament, the commandments are summed up in two major commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when these commandments are properly understood, it becomes crystal clear that we all break them, and I think we have all broken all of them, either mentally or physically, in thought or in deed. Who of us has always put God first in everything all the time. Well, none of us has. Therefore, we are idolaters. We have elevated some desire, some goal, some plan, some item, some person, something before God. That's idolatry. We don't need a, a metal image in a corner. Idolatry begins in the mind. It is mental before it is a material. Who of us has always loved others as we love ourselves? None of us. We have all entertained angry thoughts, selfish thoughts, spoken inappropriate words, done inappropriate actions. So verse 10, Galatians 3, Paul is saying, okay, You want to embrace the law as a means of justification? You think that you have what it takes to get right with God through obedience to the law? Go right ahead. Give it your best shot. But keep this in mind. If this is the manner you have chosen to be justified, you must obey all of the law, all of the time, in every situation, and never fail then you could be justified by the law. Who of us has even come close to doing that? I certainly haven't, and I don't think you have either. Perfect obedience to God's law has been achieved by one person, Jesus. And the rest of us don't go through a day 
without in some manner breaking the law of God. So what is this curse of the law? What is it? Let me mention a few things. God's law requires things contrary to human nature. It demands behavior of the opposite of our desires. It asks us to do things that we don't want to do. We don't want to forgive others when we're hurt. The Word of God says forgive them. We justify anger and sometimes bitterness. God says don't do that. We struggle putting God first in everything. The law curses us. The law refuses to accept good intentions and our best efforts as a substitute for total compliance. God does not grade on the curve. If we do not obey the law perfectly, we're sinners. The law lays down rules, and any failure to comply is unacceptable with God. The law is an unrelenting taskmaster. It never eases up. It never lightens the load. It's, it just demands, demands, demands. And the law provides no help for the sinner, no grace, no mercy. The law, once offended, provides no restoration, no redemption. There's no salvation in the law, only condemnation. And the law gives its violators the severest punishment possible, eternal damnation in hell. There's no release, there's no parole, there's no forgiveness, there is no hope. You want to be justified by the law? Give it your best shot but it isn't going to work. That's why Paul says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. So don't try to earn your way to heaven. Don't try to rack up good deeds in the hope that God will be pleased with what you're doing. See, the bent of our natures from birth is towards sin. And from day one, we fight against authority. And the first authority we fight against is that of our parents. And then as we grow older, it becomes, a, becomes clear that we don't really like the law of God because we think it cramps our style. And so we begin to hate the law of God and we begin to hate the God who gave the law. We don't want his authority. And this innate hostility is seen in all of our lives at some point. The flesh does battle with the spirit. We butt our wills against God's will. A self strives for control of every situation and won't let God be sovereign. In verse 11, Paul shows the folly of thinking that somehow our merit can do what only faith can do. Now it's evident that no one has been justified before God, uh, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. By the way, that quote is from, is from Habakkuk. I know that's a, a book you read all last week. Um, I could hardly find it. 
Um, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. So justification is not a combination of faith in God plus our efforts. We are not saved by faith and by the works of the law. We are not saved by reliance upon God for most of it and then confidence in ourselves for the rest of it. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Adherence to the law, trying to win salvation by good works or by rituals, is totally different than being justified by faith in Christ. In Leviticus 15.5, rather, or on the contrary, the one who does them shall live by them. So here's the stern warning. I've already mentioned it. If you think you can be justified by works, then you must obey every law all the time in every situation. But except for Jesus, we have never done that. So there's a huge distinction between law and faith, or works and faith. Leon Morris says this, the law is concerned with doing things. It prescribes conduct. Faith means trusting someone. Because scripture speaks of faith as the way to God, salvation cannot be by works. Faith and works may exist together in one life. Indeed, they should exist together, and I'll explain in a few moments. But faith and works cannot both be the way to salvation. Doing something to merit salvation is one thing. Trusting God to do what needs to be done is another thing. So any one of us who is trusting in our performance, who is trusting in some ritual of the church to win God's favor remains under the curse of the law. The method we are counting on to save us is condemning us. Now, I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that we can forget about the law of God, the Ten Commandments or any other of the commands in Scripture. I am not saying that his commandments have no relevance to our daily lives. They certainly do. But they're relevant as a standard of behavior, not a way of salvation. You see the difference? They're relevant as a standard of behavior, not a way of salvation. So we come to Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 8 and 9, something which, uh, a couple of verses which many of us know. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no man should boast. So salvation is by faith. It's the gift of God, not by works. But then there's verse 10. Once you are saved by faith apart from works, then verse 10 clicks in. For we are his workmanship Created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? To do good works. In other words, to obey the law. Which God prepared beforehand that we should do them. Another reference which is very, very clear about this. And I want to point this out because there are some people who think that, well, because I'm saved by faith and how I behave myself, 
It doesn't matter because I'm a Christian. And the law has no bearing upon my conduct. It has everything to do with our conduct. So, Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set me free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. See, our problem with the law is not the law, it's with us. Could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So our disobedience to the law of God was condemned in Christ who obeyed the law. Now, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So how do we fulfill the righteous requirements of the law? Through faith. It's the Holy Spirit working in us that enables us to do that. The answer to this dilemma is not to try harder to work longer, to do better, to save ourselves. The answer to the dilemma is a redeemer. It is Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what the apostle says in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The curse of the law is death. Death because of sin. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law on our behalf. We become righteous before God when we accept by faith the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He was the substitute who took our place of condemnation. And that's why the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, you are not under condemnation. If you are not in Christ Jesus, you are still under condemnation, under the wrath of God. The very idea of redemption means the payment of a price, to be released through the payment of a price. So our need for redemption and for a redeemer proves that we cannot rescue ourselves. It's beyond our capacity. We need someone to rescue us. We need a redeemer to pay the price. And that redeemer is Jesus. Phil Newton says, can we even begin to imagine the horrible weight of our sin before God? Can we even start to fathom the severity of God's wrath which we deserve as sinners? Can we even begin to understand the absolute holiness of God which stands in eternal contrast to our sinfulness? Can we even begin to consider the wondrous bounty of grace? I love that expression. The wondrous bounty of grace which God has shown to us in Jesus. And the answer is no, we can't comprehend that, but it's true. We come to Jesus with all our failures, with all our sins, We ask for his his redemption, for his forgiveness, for his mercy, and we receive it as a free gift. There's one more phrase I just want to briefly comment on. It's at the end of 
verse 14, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Faith. Paul's already said that the Galatians were redeemed by the hearing of faith. That's how they received the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit promise to those who believe in Jesus? He regenerates us. He gives us new life. He seals us in the body of Christ, which means we are kept secure, not by our obedience, but by God's power. He guarantees our future inheritance. When we, get, when we go to heaven, he leads us as children of God and bears witness with our spirits that we are truly in Christ. He indwells our bodies so that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. He unites us with the body of Christ throughout the world. Every true believer in Christ in Wetaskiwin, in Alberta, in Canada, in India, wherever we are, every true believer is our brother and sister in Christ. I'm talking about not those who join a church. I'm talking about true believers. He fills us and empowers us so that we display the character of Christ and bear witness. And the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts according to his good pleasure. Pleasure. So, let's go back to the title. Blessed or cursed? Where are you at? Where are you at? What is your status? If you're doing your best to win favor with God, you are still under the curse of the law. You will never make it that way, not in a zillion, quadrillion years. It's a terrible place to be under the curse of the law. If you flee to the cross, if you go to the Redeemer, I don't care what you've done, if you go to the Redeemer, he will forgive you. He will show you mercy. He will save you. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. God will not hold your sin against you if you are in Christ because the condemnation and the judgment has already taken place at the cross. So who is the blessed person? The one who trusts in Christ alone. Who is the blessed person? The one who is justified by faith. And my prayer to you today is that you are in the flow of the blessing of God, not the flow of the curse of God. And you can go from the position of being under the curse of the law to being forgiven completely by fleeing to the Redeemer who will rescue you and deliver you and will save you. And that is by faith in Jesus. And may you do that even now. Let us pray. God, the gospel is so clear and it is so tragic when the idea is floated around that there is three faiths but one God implying there are many ways to salvation because after all we all believe the same thing and Lord that just isn't true we don't the God of the Bible is unique 
He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And although that's a great mystery to us, that's still the teaching of the Bible. And the only way to be saved, the only way to be made right with God is through faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Make that truth so clear in our hearts. May we not fudge on that in our witness. And if we have not come to Christ, may we do so now. In Jesus' name, amen.